Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are joined by our mutual good friend, Dr. David Haynes. Uh, this shows how tolerant we are on this program because uh, 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 it shows that even if you're Canadian, you can still you can still make it all the way on the Pilgrim Faith Podcast. Uh, uh, yeah, David Haynes is a dear brother who Dale and I have known for a couple of years. He's presented at some conferences we've attended. Uh, and recently, this is very exciting, was made the Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary, which is is now run by our, our, our I guess, the mutual good friend of all three of us. Better be a good friend of David, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Joe Rigney. Uh, but David is teaching philosophy and theology there. I've learned an enormous amount from David. I know Dale has as well. And we're here today to talk about uh, his book that was actually published by the Davenant Institute. Uh, he, uh, David just published a lot with us. Uh, but this is a really wonderful book he's published for us, Natural Theology, A Biblical and Historical Introduction and Defense. Uh, very elegant uh, 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 volume, very readable, uh, uh, hits all the right points. Michael Horton said of the volume that it's a, a very important, well-informed and articulate exploration of a major piece of theology that has been missing of late from our memory. Uh, mm. And I, I agree very much with Dr. Horton's assessment there. David, maybe as a way of just getting into this topic, I know you and Dale were recently chatting a bit and uh I think you had mentioned to him, uh, as you say in your foreword, this is really a project that you started working on a long time ago. Uh, and so you sort of are writing this work on natural theology before, in a sense, natural theology became the talk of the town uh, in reformed circles. You know, for those of us who entered reformed circles, maybe in the in the 90s or something like that, or the, the early 2000s. Even by that time, natural theology in reform, at least in broader reformed evangelical contexts, the phrase natural theology was kind of a, we all had Bart's reaction. There was a little lizard brain nine that fired <laughs> yeah. in us when we heard natural theology. Uh, but that's shifted a bit. And so there's a big controversy now in the air about whether Protestants and especially Reformed Protestants can hold to this thing called natural theology. Maybe just tell us, uh, what do you think's going on there? You know, how does this, maybe one way of asking that is how does the book you've just written, even though it, you didn't mean to write it for this controversy, how does this book sort of uh, speak, I guess you could say, into that whirlwind uh, that's, that we see around us right now on this, on this topic? Sure. Um, well, like you said, I didn't intend to write it as a part of the controversy. The controversy wasn't even really on at the forefront of theology when I started researching this subject. Uh, for myself, it came out of my own uh, desire to be uh, fully orthodox as far as a, as a Reformed theologian. I wanted to make sure I was in line with what Reformed theology has been historically teaching. And, and, and that's where the book came from. It came from me just going back to the original sources, diving deep, looking at what they're saying, trying to understand it, articulating it as best as I can, and then realizing after a while, you know, I've got enough research on this. It's been helpful for myself. It's, it's been, some of it's been published in articles already, and it's been, other people have been talking about how helpful this was. Maybe this will, maybe if I just put all of this together in book form, it, it'll be helpful for other people than myself alone. And it turns out it's, it's, it's been, I've had lots of great feedback on that. How does it, talk to today, I mean, I hope that what it's going to do is help to kind of de define some of the, the, the lines that we are, we're talking about. So what is natural revelation? What is natural theology, natural law, natural uh, revelation, natural religion, another term that we can throw around. Uh, and, and then where do they all fit or not fit? You know, where, where's, where are things supposed to be? What are we talking about? And specifically uh, for myself, again, how did the early reformers talk about it? Uh, what was what were what were they teaching on this subject? Uh, and that is, uh, I think, for myself, uh, one of the big questions that's that I think I'm trying to I'm, try, I'm hoping people will get out of this is how has this been discussed uh, yeah. throughout history? Yeah, I um, I think you've done a good job of making it. Uh, Joe in the introduction said that. Uh, it's a very readable, it's a very accessible book. It's not very long, and you lament at the beginning about everything that made the uh, editing floor. Um, so maybe there's a larger work there later on down the line, brother. Uh, <laughs> 
But I, I, I want to ask a question, but I also want to say, um, when you describe your journey into natural theology, I have somewhat similar. Um, yours was completely divorced from, I think you got introduced by um, Norm Geisler. Yep. And I was introduced after having read Van Til. Mm -hmm. So I was coming from Van Til and then like Joe said, it was like this allergy against natural theology. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but I started to read one thing, and I'm going to ask you to define natural theology. And if you want to sort of lay out all the different naturals that you use at the beginning, feel free. But maybe we should just define natural theology because that's the title of the book. But one thing that I was quickly aware of is the way that natural theology was explained Mm -hmm. made sense of the reason that I have reason and logic uh, and senses. So on that front, it was like, oh, yeah, like these aren't just appendages hanging off of my human form that have no real function, but it's like the wisdom of the creator to endow me with these things that I have to pick up all the signals. Yeah. Um, and that that's really why I think natural theology is starting to at least the reformed world a little bit more people are looking for that intellectual depth so tell us what natural theology is how are you defining it how has it historically been defined sure yeah so I, there are different ways in which it's been defined throughout history the way that i for myself the way i define it and i some people might say hey if you read this in the, into the past you know you're putting your own definition back there what i've tried to do in my definition is kind of bring together everything i've seen uh, as I've been going through history and looking at what's being done uh, un under the title of natural theology. Uh, and so I would define it as essentially that which man can know uh, through reasoned observations of the cosmos about God, that is, that he exists, and something of the divine nature. Uh, I might add in, you know, the, the, the nuance and this knowledge is, you know, without the aid of special revelation, uh, special revelation in, in as for Christians referring specifically to the word of God, uh, the scriptures. And so without the aid of scriptures, uh, natural theology is that which man can know about God through reasoned observations of the cosmos. Uh, natural theology works with, and so if we're going to distinguish some of those naturals, the, you might say the material that natural theology as a science is working with is what, what we call it natural revelation. It's the cosmos. So when I say reasoned observation of the cosmos, that word cosmos is referring to what we call natural revelation. Hmm. So it's it's the whole natural realm, myself included as, yeah. as a theologian. Yeah. I'm not excluded from natural revelation. I am a part of it. And mm -hmm. we see that in Calvin. We see that in Augustine, right? They, they've got this idea of you, you even have the sense of the divine within yourself and you can go into yourself look at your own body, look at your own soul and realize mm -hmm. something of the creator, right? Yeah. And, and, that, and so keeping that in mind as well, what is natural revelation? Well, it's everything and me too. I'm part of it. Yeah. Uh, so we've got natural theology works with natural revelation as its material. Uh, one way to, to maybe help uh, illustrate this idea for, for people who, you know, uh, I grew up, I did my bachelor's in, you know, you know biblical studies and, and in theology. And, and for me, before I even heard of natural theology, it was scriptures. And so one, maybe one way to help illustrate this would be to say something like this, you know, biblical theology works with the Bible, hmm. the material that the science of biblical theology deals with is the scriptures. And so we open the scriptures, we study the scriptures, we interpret the scriptures, we, we come to, we, we come to uh, a systematized knowledge of what the scriptures are teaching, and that's what we would call the biblical theology. Natural theology is doing the same thing, but with the cosmos, and, and, and it's, it's important to note, in both cases, biblical theology, natural theology, you are using reason. Right. Yeah. Right? So reason is being used to properly, and and hermeneutical principles to properly interpret the word of God and come to clear doctrine. And it's the same thing with natural theology. Reason is being used with the tools of logic. Uh, so you, you might say you could throw in maybe some you know, scientific analysis, but you don't, for natural theology, you don't have to necessarily be a biologist. You, you don't have to use the tools mm. of biology or chemistry or, or right. uh, astrophysicists, phys physicists. You, know, you, you don't have to 
use those tools to do natural theology. In fact, uh, Calvin and his institute is going to say that to a certain extent, the farmer knows even better than the scholar that God exists because he goes outside every single day and interacts mm. with the work of God. It's, 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 it's yes. right in front of him. It's tangible. He's, he's putting his hands in the dirt that God created. He's planting those seeds. He's seeing God through divine providence, watering and providing, right? And, and Calvin himself will say the natural world teaches us of divine providence. One of those things that we learn about God through the natural world. Mm. So that, let me see here. We're, we've done natural theology. We've got natural revelation. Uh, if we move over a, a, a step, Sometimes you will hear people talk about natural religion, uh, and this is used in a, I, I, sometimes it's used by people who uh, are in earlier, earlier reform circles, you know, around maybe like the 17th century, uh, and they're using it to talk about natural theology. Okay, so the, the, for them, natural revelation or natural religion means natural theology. However, natural religion is also sometimes taken to refer to what we know today as like, as deism. And so right. I try to, I, I personally, for myself to understand this better, I tend to say, let's distinguish but, uh, and say natural religion is just deism and that's false. Now, there, there, there may be truths about God that they have latched onto because of natural theology, but that by then excluding the scriptures and saying we don't need that, we are just going to worship the God of the philosophers per se, they fall into idolatry. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. I, I don't know if that's helpful. That, that's how I've tended to. That it's, yeah. that it's they've, they've taken the, the a natural religion is, is effectively to take the postulates of natural theology and say that is an entire religion unto itself when that's, that's it. really more a skeleton <laughs> uh, that yes. needs to be enfleshed out. One question I guess I have real quick while we're working through that taxonomizing our naturals, I guess, is, uh, is there a... Uh, is there a practical component to the early reform tradition of natural religion? That is to say, can we say not just that there are uh, kind of universal things that are known about God, but also universal practices that all kind of, and so in other mm. words, deists, I would think, for instance, would still, still would think that often weirdly because as we know there's kind of a range of how deisms worked out yep. but sometimes they for instance thought prayer like that was natural for man that particular act is just you know innate uh in man's religious life it, it, what did that language also develop early in the reform context that natural religion could just could also just be like the universal human compunction to prayer or something like that yeah, absolutely. And, and that's going to be partially due to natural, what we call natural law. So natural law re referring to human action. And then usually what we fit under there, if, if, when you read the early reformers and, I, and, and the early Lutherans, by, by the way, we could probably all yeah. lump them all together and just say the early Protestant reformers almost unanimously are saying that natural law uh, was expressed in divine scriptures in the Ten Commandments. And, and so they, they can, what they're going to say is we can then take those 10 commandments and then come back to the, you might say the secular realm and use that knowledge of this is what is true. And I can prove these things through natural reason and then come back to the secular realm and prove those things naturally. And well, what amongst those are things like how to properly worship God, that God is worthy of worship and so on. Mm. Right. And, and so, yeah, there, there will be aspects of Christian of worship. I won't say Christian, uh, but there are aspects of worship that are related to that, to the, the, the nature and existence of God. And that's not just early reform. What's really interesting is that you go back to the pre-Socratics Right. And you are going to find pre-Socratic <clears throat> philosophers saying that there is a first principle which to which we should pray, and specifically, not just pray, pray for help to be virtuous. It's yeah. really interesting when you go back to these pre-Socratics and you see that. Plato is very explicit on, on, on this idea as well. There's a notion of a purification process that needs to be gone through so that we can ascend to the mm -hmm. divine and Early Christians, in fact, right, right now, another interesting debate on the on the current uh, in, in the current in current Protestant academia is the notion of Christian Platonism, and, and one of the reasons why a lot of early church fathers uh, went to to Plato for for resources is that they were they were seeing Plato saying many of the same things that Christian theology was saying, 
Now, Christian theology was very specific about, uh, you might say, who God is, but that God is, that we should desire God more than the temporal, uh, sensible realm, that we should be willing to uh, abandon even the temporal, uh, sensible realm and all of its pleasures in order yeah. to purify ourselves so that we can ascend and be united to the divine. I mean, that's all in, we find that in Plato and then in, in, in Platonists going right through, we, we find the Demiurge in the Timaeus uh, who, who by looking at the eternally mutable forms uh, creates the sensible realm and brings that into being. Yeah. And, and so all of these notions are there in Platonism and Christians latched onto them. Uh, one of the reasons why they latched onto them is because they had a, a huge apologetic purpose. Mm. And, and yeah. so, so some of us will think, oh, by apologetics, you mean prove that God exists. No, right. for the early Christians, it had nothing to do with proving that God exists. The, the, the Greek world knew that already. They, right. they knew Plato, they knew Cicero. Like this, this is not news to them. The apologetic purpose for calling upon these philosophers who are talking about the fact that God exists, something of the divine nature, that we should be worshiping God and indeed even pursuing purity in our, in our lives. The reason why they were calling upon them is they were being killed by, by Roman emperors. Yeah. And so their appeal to them was, hey, look, your own philosophers say exactly the same thing that we are saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would uh, you kill us for agreeing with you? It's fascinating and oh, I'm sorry, Dale, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say, um, well, no, you make your point and then I'll ask. I was I just going to say, it is interesting in Acts that Paul, how Paul, right. I think, hangs out in a school of a philosopher for two years at one point. Uh, and, 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 and yeah, that they would have, it's almost like the, the early preachers, apostolic preachers might have been read by the context as belonging to kind of the group of philosophers with these kind of more reformist uh, 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 pagan critique impulses. But it's, uh, yeah, that's all I was going to say. I'll, I'll pass it on to Dale for now. Yeah, so your book is cut up into two two parts. Um, you have the biblical text uh, that you sort of walk through and do some exegesis to show. If we just look at the Bible, it's pretty clear that what you're using your definition of natural theology is assumed in the text. Um, and then the second part of the book is working through the pre-Socratics uh, and then all the way up um, until I think you, the last part you deal with is a, a Protestant theologians from the 15 to the 1700s. Um, and then you make some conclusions, but okay. So I read David Haynes' book and I say to myself, huh, this just seems to be the thing that everyone was engaged in when it came to talking about, number one, being alive on this terrestrial ball, making sense of all the things that encroach upon my senses. And it seems like they were all, like you were talking about, ascended uh, to come up with, relatively speaking, similar ideas uh about the nature of everything so what happened so if that was the norm right and then it's the norm up through the reformation what happened where did it go wrong is it modern philosophies that started to creep into theology and and you know the two were sort of uh, trying to synthesize uh, a new hot take for christianity in the modern age or or was it you know, the theological uh, perversions that crept into the church? Or I know it's difficult to ask this question, but if you were to take a shot at it, uh, just go ahead and blame Van Til is really all I'm asking you to say, brother. Right, right. It's, all, it's all his fault. I mean, yeah, right. It's, it, that's a, a really complicated question to answer. Uh, I mean, it, it'd, be, it'd be fun to just say like a lot of, you know, early 20th century uh, Christian th philosophers did. It's all Descartes' fault. Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> can, can nominalism or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll blame yes. him. Um, yes. <laughs> so it, it's it's a bit more complicated than just that. Uh, and it's I don't even I, I don't know that I would necessarily put it all on modern philosophy per se. There there was certainly a a, a rejection of teleology or, or the, mm -hmm. the notion of a, that a final end, which certainly uh, took started taking place in the modern period. Uh, you've got the inversion of of ontology and, and epistemology with Descartes, like he basically flips it on his head, where uh, 
prior to Descartes. And, and Descartes is one, one of the ones I'll, I'll choose kind of like a hinge, but it, it, we find it before him, okay? Like he's, not the, he's not the main guy, but we, we do know, see in Descartes this inversion where uh, the question of being becomes dependent upon knowing. So mm. knowing is first, being is second. Where right. prior to that, you know, in, in ancient medieval philosophy in general, you're going to find the, a general idea of being precedes knowing. So you've got that. Uh, I think probably if I was going to be more, you know, if I could be, if I could boil it all down, I, I'd say there's a couple of things going on. One, through the modern period, going into the postmodern uh, period of, of thought, there is a gradual uh, diminishing of, you might say, trust in our rational abilities. Hmm. There's a growth in people arguing that we, uh, we live, we are always in our knowledge 100% fully situated, such that you can't say anything without coming at it from a perspective that you already possess. Mm. And, and I'm, by talking a bit like this, I'm betraying that I'm getting ready to lecture on Martin Heidegger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but we, we find that there. So the, the but and you see this, for example, in Alistair McGrath and his approach to, to natural theology, that you actually, for, for McGrath, there's this idea that you can't even really have a natural theology unless you presuppose Christian theology. So you've got to, you can only interpret the world through a certain lens. And if you interpret it through that lens, then yeah, sure, we can see that God exists and there are attributes of uh, divine attributes. McGrath does that. It's a, a form of critical realism that he's bringing in there. Uh, you, mm. you find that in Van Til. Uh, but it's not new with them. It's not like they came up with it. It's not, and so it's not really their fault per se, but it, it's, you see this gradual movement towards that because mm. of a, a, a gradual lessening of confidence in the abilities of our rational powers to be able to actually come to know truth. Mm. And that takes place through the modern period. And there's all kinds of things that brought that to be. You, know, you can't just say, oh, it's his fault. You yeah. know, Kant had a, you know, Kant has a lot to do with it. Yes. Uh, so right. there's Descartes. But it's, 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 there's, it's just a, a movement that takes place. Another thing that I would say that adds to that, so take that gradual lessening of, a, of confidence in our rational abilities, add into this uh, a growing, you might say, uh, negativity uh, or cynicism about human abilities in relationship to sin. So if you go back to the reform period and you read the reformers on, on, on the effects of original sin on, on the human intellect, the noetic effects of sin, uh, you're going to find a panoply of, I think that's an English word, panoply. Yep. Yeah. I, can, I say that in French anyways. <laughs> yes. um, Good enough panoply, for our show. We'll accept it. <laughs> perfect. Sounds good. If, we'll just say I invented a word if it's not already. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's right. They find a panoply of, of uh, approaches to uh how original sin actually affects the human intellect. Some are more cynical, you know, mm. but, and here's an important aspect. As cynical as they get, the great majority of them affirm that regardless of how much sin has affected human faculties, the human being still has something of the light of reason, the natural light of reason that allows him to know uh, truths about God and moral truths, which we, we started talking about that earlier with natural law, we can still know that. Sometimes they'll talk about a spark or, you know, in, in Theodore Beza, he, he, in his commentary on Job, he talks about like a candle uh, that we have in the darkness. It doesn't shine very brightly. It's, it's nothing compared to the sun, but I mean, it's enough to kind of see your way through things, right? And so you've got this idea still there in, in these theologians. Well, with if you could just kind of see people in general are, are losing their confidence in the human ability to to find truth and then add into that a very um negative view of human intellect already because of uh, original sin it's not that difficult to to see how over time you're just going to arrive at the conclusion yeah you can't the natural man simply can't know anything about god 
Yeah, one of the kind of pairing your comment on John Calvin, you know, mentioning that sometimes to the farm worker, God is clearer than to the intellectual sort of sitting in a room reading books. And it, it would also be worth pointing, I, I think it's actually Henri de Blubach who makes this claim that uh, the, the natural tendency of agricultural civilizations is paganism, and the natural tendency of industrial civilizations is atheism. Mm -hmm. uh, because they're they're kind of disconnected from the the textures, as it were, in which the livingness of things uh, mm -hmm. communicates itself. Yep. But it does segue, I guess, to a, a question I'd love clarification on. And I think it's, you know, this is a, a dispute that exists uh, among those, I think, who affirm a natural theology. And that is, um, you know, when we talk about the clarity of natural revelation. Hmm. Uh, is this a clarity that is only accessible to the particularly intelligent? Or can we speak of uh, um, a natural theology or a participation in natural law in a young child who knows something like it's, can God's existence be clear to a, to a young child who is not a great reasoner themselves. And so, you know, when we talk about Romans 1 and it says something like, you know, that the divine nature has been clear since through what has been made, et cetera, you know, is Romans 1 referring to, it's been clear because everybody has technically had the ability to discover these formal arguments, mm -hmm. or does that clarity mediate to the mind, uh, not, you know, in some way that, pings the mind as it were but it's not necessarily a statement about the you know for the formalization of arguments for the existence of god yeah t tell me yeah comment on that for me yeah that's an awesome question that there, and, and yeah you're right there is there is a debate on the issue which is which is really I mean, it's, it's a really interesting debate it, it takes you back to i i think it takes you back to ancient philosophy so uh, it, it, it kind of it, the answer to the question is going to depend on hey do i think that there are innate ideas you know, kind of like in the Platonist, Platonist approach to epistemology, or do I think that there are not innate ideas? Not that we're, you know, not necessarily that the blank slate of some modern philosophers who are, who are full-on empiricists, but more of the blank slate of a, you know, um, Aristotle or Richard Hooker, actually. Uh, I, I happen to have uh, the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity oh. by Davenant Press. <laughs> and he talks about, he doesn't say blank slate, he talks about a blank book, right? So you've got a book with, with empty pages. And you, you, it's being writ on, written on as you, as you grow. So depending on your approach to uh, the human acquisition of knowledge, the answer you're going to give will actually be different. And, and, I, and I, I tried to approach that a little bit in a section in, in Augustine, in my chapter on Augustine, where I talked about how Augustine would view natural knowledge or of God and how we, how we obtain it. And so if you have an innate idea of God and you're Platonist, then you might say something like, like, like this. You know, when I, when I see things in the world, uh, they stimulate uh, this, these ideas in my mind, which, which are illuminated by, by God. And, and so you might say something like this, everybody has an innate idea of God. And so some Reformed theologians go that direction. They, they tend to be more Platonist in their epistemology, and they read Calvin's notion of the sensus divinitatis as saying, we have a innate idea of God. And there is probably a good reason to read Calvin that way. He, he was very influenced by Cicero. There's, there's great academic work that's been done to show that uh, Calvin's view of natural knowledge of God is almost entirely influenced by Cicero's on the nature of the gods. Hmm. And, and so you, you've, you've, which, which in and of itself, by the way, says a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> Calvin is getting his entire notion of natural knowledge of God from a pagan philosopher. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Put that out there. Okay. Uh, now, if I come back and I say, but wait, not all reformers were Platonists. Richard Hooker uh, takes an approach which is much more Aristotelian. And so for him, his view would be something like, well, as I go into the world and I see things, I, 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 they become classified in my mind, and I have to come to some sort of inferential knowledge that God exists. Now, for both sides, here's what's interesting, is that regardless of whether you take the Platonist approach or the Aristotelian approach, both sides are able to say something along the following lines, whether you or not you have a clear grasp of what you mean even by God or that God exists or something of the divine nature, all humans have a vague 
you might say, ambiguous notion of the existence of God. Mm, uh, I okay. personally prefer the way Aquinas comes at it, where he says that whenever I desire anything as good, whatever it is, I desire a good book. Well, that the goodness of that thing is an imitation of divine goodness. Yeah. Yes. And so by desiring anything as good, I'm actually, whether I'm aware of it or not, desiring God. And so right. I've got this vague notion of divinity. Now, I want, there was something else I want to say. There's, I want to have an analogy for how we come to know, have a clearer notion of God. Uh, for, so first of all, I would say, you know, honesty, when do we ever get a really clear notion of what we <laughs> Yeah, right, right, right. I've been studying this stuff for years. And yeah, I could probably sit down and enumerate a bunch of attributes and say, this is what I mean by God. And then someone would be like, do you really? Let's go back and talk about some of these attributes. Then you go talk to Ryan Hurd and you're like, you're just walking away. That's right, exactly. Then you're mind blown and back to the blackboard, (laughs) right? Yeah. So we're always constantly uh, refining our idea of what we mean by God, coming to know God more. And yeah. so the, if, if I go back in time and go back to that, you know, that three-year-old, that five-year-old, that 10-year-old, well, when I was five, when I was 10, my understanding of what I mean by God was very different from what it is now. I grew, I, I came to have no more knowledge. Now, here's so here's the analogy I would provide. Uh, think about breathing. Uh, if you have a baby in the womb, that baby in the womb is not technically breathing. But as it comes close to being born, it starts, uh, its body starts making the movements, the physical movements of what it would be doing if it were breathing. Okay. Mm. But it still has no idea what breathing. Like, it's not like it breathes and then it's born and it starts to breathe. And, and then, you know, from, from, from birth until let's say for the, for just to throw a number out there till 14 or so. It's, it breathes like everybody else, and it doesn't think about it. It's not like it's sitting there thinking, okay, breathe in, breathe out. Right, you know, right, right. Whew, this is tough work, right? Yeah. It just breathes. But then yeah. at 14 years old, uh, I, I, I think that's about the age when they go to high school and they start getting interested in track and field. Now, if they want to run track, not only do they have to breathe, they have to learn to breathe rightly. Mm. So, 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 in fact, if you're going to do any type of sport that requires, you know, moving, I don't know if chess counts as a sport, so I, you, you might not need to learn proper <laughs> breath, breathing techniques for chess, right? <laughs> but if you're, going to, if you're going to do running and play soccer, you, one of the things you need to learn is how to breathe properly so that you can run for longer distances. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so what's, what's really weird about that is you're taking something that you do naturally, you know naturally, and getting better at it. Yeah. Okay, so, so you can come back and say that to God too, right? You can, you can talk about our natural knowledge of God is constantly growing. We may have a natural knowledge of God that we're not aware of at all. And then throughout our life, through our education, through our interaction with this cosmos, through reading the word of God, we are gaining a better knowledge of God, just like we can become better at even natural things like breathing. Right? Yeah, and that seems to make sense given the fact that God created us. <laughs> it really is. I don't mean to sound so simplistic, yeah. but it, it just it, common sense would say if a creator created, uh, uh, you know, this world and humans that were made in his image, it's to call them to himself. Mm-hmm. And so every part of creation is going to be the call towards ascending to him. Yeah. Um, and you know, if and he if he meticulously designs all the systems inside of the blurb of the blob of reality, uh, then everything has a particular function to draw attention to him. And that's why I want to loop back around just quickly to um, Joe mentioned you you said at the beginning of your book how going on a walk with your family mm-hmm. really helped you uh, not only come to a deeper understanding of God. Uh, but also um, to experience God almost in a deeper way. Um, And the pre-Socratics and the tradition has always talked about beauty as a vehicle through which we arrive at a deeper understanding of God. Uh, And then the phenomena that all humans share across geography and and, and, and space and time 
wherein we recognize beauty and value it as creatures. And it's like, why is that? What is going on here? Mm -hmm. uh, and it gets to what you were saying earlier about if I see the beautiful thing, it's not the thing that's beautiful that really is the beauty. It's the beauty above the beautiful thing that your mind should ultimately be drawn to. And I think given enough time, if you don't have Facebook and Twitter and you know, <laughs> you're out in the desert herding sheep for 40 years, you'll probably say there's got to be a, an artisan that made the beautiful thing that evokes these responses out of me. And these sensory responses are not meaningless mm -hmm. because it, 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 it summons meaning, meaning, meaning out of me towards it. Yeah. Um, and so like all the way down to the most fundamental questions of what it just means to have your eyes open and recognize things uh, is is evidence for God. So well, it's, it pings what uh, David was saying earlier, you know, that quote from Aquinas that that what we desire and desiring any good is ultimately God. I think there's a similar mm -hmm. statement. Maybe it's made at the same time that what we're trying to know in any truth is also God is also the transcendental yes. truth. But yeah, it's interesting definitely. to think how beauty fits into that. that that's yeah. controversial, of course. How does beauty fit into this? But one way that I know Schindler uh, talks about beauty that I think is very interesting mm. is if you think of the, 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 the goodness of God, as it were, uh, the whiff of God's goodness sort of distributed in the goodness of things that draws yeah. us back to God. The, tr the whiff of God's truth sort of distributed in the truth of things. How does that work with beauty? And one view is that beauty is sort of the, the shine of being. That it's, yeah. it's, it's the thing that's standing out. And, and it almost is the thing that distinctively gets at that nascent stage of knowledge. It's that first evocative wonder where I know that that, in a sense, there's a haunting presence to things. But I, and it evokes my desire, my desire and my desire to know and knowledge. But it's not, I haven't arrived at that yet. It's the, it, it summons me out in a sense. Yeah, and, uh, the desire for that pleasure that the beauty brings about, it, it's, it's very powerful. Yes, mm. fa yeah, absolutely fascinating. And Lewis talks a lot about this, that, that state of desire. Uh, uh, one, maybe one way, thing to go on to, to, to mention, because there's these two sections and there's some fascinating bits in each of them. One of them is in your... In your biblical section, I think the discussion you have that I found really helpful is to get folks to realize that whenever we're doing exegesis, there is this impression out there that we are we're that there's sort of the guys doing sort of Greek metaphysics and torturing the page. And then there's these people just reading the Bible as it really speaks. And one of the things you try to show is like, nobody does that. The ancient Jews didn't even do that. And it's clear in the text itself that they're not doing that. Now, this is complicated, of course, by the fact that there are, there are, there are, uh, example, really, just to, to, to make that clear, first of all, you know, you think like the text says God changes his mind, and then a couple of verses later, it can say, but he's not like a man that he should change his mind. Yep, exactly. Clearly, the author has some sense that we can predicate a thing of a God and negate it of God, and you're supposed to be smart enough to figure that out. It, it, it would probably be fair to say that the Old Testament and even the New Testament doesn't do all the affirming and it doesn't do all the work for us. And really the discourse of the church is really just the church doing that work as intelligent human interpreters. And it's not impossible that sometimes you get it wrong. Yep. <laughs> you know, that, that actually that can be taken more literally because it's actually just a phantasm and there's a bunch of other toys to play with <laughs> to do our exegetical work. But the, the more basic point uh, that I think is so crucial and necessary if we're going to avoid any version of idolatry uh, is that when the Bible mentions these things of God, it's very clear that it, it to call it, oh, we're just anthropomorphizing, you can't not do that. Yeah, <laughs> if right. we're talking about a God that is anything like the God of any version of Christianity that has ever existed, then there has to be actually the giving of you of these handles, sometimes without clarifying them, because you don't always need it clarified, actually. Yeah. Uh, but in as much as we wind up asking these formal questions, that clarification becomes important. Does God have a body or not? That does matter. Right. <laughs> you does know, matter. And, and really everything that we move on in natural theology 
is, is in some ways just moving one step after that question. Is the divine nature like a body? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, or it is in one sense and not in a more even greater sense. And then you move on from there. Yeah. And, and that seems to be contradicting, contradicting scripture, right? Because the scriptures say God has a hand. He has eyes. He walks in a garden and sits on a throne. I mean, yes. things like that need body parts. Yes. Right? So when we say God doesn't have a body... It sounds like we're contradicting scripture, but what we're really doing is affirming the truth about God. And Calvin will talk about this idea of divine condescension. God right. is speaking to us in ways that we can understand, because if he tried to explain to us the way what he is, most people probably would not be able to go there. Yeah. 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 And even if it's, even if um, there's the category of like a literal, phantasm you know so like you know Stephen looking up to heaven and there's jesus sitting on the right hand of god does god literally have a right hand you know that's a question and it's like well whatever image he saw might have quite been a literal image that he's just talking about but then the question becomes does god the father in his eternal essence have one of these yes right. or no you yes. have to be able to say no in some way that's to right, like yeah. make all this work Otherwise, we're out of a job. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good argument for why the um, different disciplines are so important to be in conversation with each other. Yeah. You need systematics, you need biblical theology, and you need natural theology. And those three things need to be part of the conversation when you're doing exegesis. Yep. Uh, and there's never an emphasis on one over the other. They need to be in dialogue with each other so that you arrive at a, an appropriate or at least an appropriate way to not say something. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, we're better off just saying, I'm not sure, but it can't be that rather than making affirmations, I think. But uh, yeah. for a good Go Christian systematic theology, I would say natural theology is a part of that. It, you can't do yeah. systematic theology without natural theology there. Yeah. 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 One of the one of the things that I think you can appreciate as you take the approach you're taking to the to the scriptures, and especially if you look at the scriptures as a collection of documents in, in some real way, it's also one document, but as a, also a collection of documents that were penned over a long period of real human history. And a long period of, uh, we might even say, stages of discourse within human history. So Genesis is not Paul. Revelation is a little different than Daniel even. And you, you know, there's, there's a spread of times that are written. Uh, and what you see in a way, I think quite strikingly, act, I, I, I've never seen this written as a dissertation, but I think it would make could make one. You do see, I think, the development of human discourse actually contained interestingly in the pages of scripture itself and which gets me to the, your chapter on the pre-socratics one of the things i i always love seeing is somebody tracing a, a motif kind of from uh several hundred years bc to several hundred years ad mm -hmm. where you're sort of taking a discourse that's almost straddling with one hand right at the end of what we you know the ancient near east and all of its vibrant you know you know imagery uh but then all the way into this development of almost neo-teutonic philosophy on the other hand and what's fascinating i think and, and really explodes in my judgment any notion of sort of the greek versus hebrew thinking or something like that right, right. is that that process is really empire-wide like second temple judaism there's no, I, I don't think at this point, any coherent reading of Second Temple Judaism that doesn't already see them playing with these toys thoroughly. If you yeah. pick, pick up your, your, your Charlesworth, you know, sets of intertestamental literature, mm -hmm. you're going to find Greek philosophy all over those documents. Yeah, and perfect. you find it in the pages of the New Testament. You find it in some of the later documents of the Old Testament. <laughs> you yep. already see these these dialogues happening, and the early church, in a sense, is not in that sense. They're they're doing a, in some sense, an exercise that they're the Jewish people are already engaged in, That's as right. Martin Hengel has shown. Is like the Jews were already reading philosophers and saying our God, our Yahweh, is kind of like this, but not like that. That was normal already. <laughs> Exactly. And, and, and what your book does that I find fascinating is that that especially that chapter on sort of the pre-Socratics to the early Christians, I think really just captures. Yeah, it's really just a, a development and conversation mm -hmm. that the Christians are able to say, oh, yeah, we can pick this 
you know, they're picking and choosing yeah. like a buffet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if, yeah. you keep in, if you keep in mind as well that philosophy in the ancient world is a way of life, it's, mm-hmm. it's not an academic exercise, mm-hmm. right? You, you don't have, you know, the, the philosopher who has his job and then he right. goes home and does something else. Philosophy was a way of life. Christian, Christians are coming along and saying, we are the true philosophers, Justin Martyr is saying to be a Christian is to be a philosopher. That is a lover of wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in a sense, Christianity is coming along and saying, yes, okay, so there are these philosophies. There are those philosophies. They don't have all truth. There are some truths that we can glean from these and some truths we can glean from those. And But the true philosophy is Christianity. The, the, right, the true way of life, which leads to God, is mm-hmm. through Christ. Christ is the way. Right. Yeah. So, so it does kind of fit into that uh, ambience, which, which is, which again is really interesting as far as when Christ coming, yeah. coming at the appropriate time, the yes. right time in history. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's absolutely well. Well, it's like universal. This I think really um, uh, the guy who wrote Dominion, Tom Holland, is kind of pointing this out. It's like you the 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 discourse of a kind of philosophical universalism. What are the most yeah. basic things? And this interesting uh, redemptive universalism, mm-hmm. the, re- the redemption of all things. The, yeah, those those discourses fuse in Christianity and just absolutely. Yeah. Fa- and we're I mean, that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So, David, near the end of the book, um, you start to deal with objections. Yeah. So I guess I have a personal question first. So in the in the process of you writing this and just, you know, seeking out conversation partners to bounce ideas off of, have conversations with, sharpen your rhetoric, um, did you find anyone in, you know, reformed conservative circles that was just completely appalled at the project you were in, you were about to engage in uh, for any of the reasons that you listed in this book as objections? Just personal. Curious. Um- and if and if and if you did, who are they? What are their names? Where do they work? Their addresses. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, some of, so some of those arguments come from personal conversations uh, from people who were reading specifically uh, Van Til, where I where I drew them from as well. Uh, but a lot of this was to, to, to me as the philosopher sitting in his philosopher's armchair reading these books. Uh, so a lot of it was finding those arguments in, in the books as well. Uh, yeah. Now, I drew from some of the arguments from Van Til in part because a great deal of the opposition to natural theology, right. uh, as, a, as, as I defined it earlier, uh, comes out of a form of Van Tilian Reformed theology. And uh, it was, it, it's become particularly strong and vocal in the last maybe 20 years or so. Uh, associated, interestingly enough, with a form of naive biblicism and Baptist theology. Uh, and mm. so it, it was becoming quite strong in my own circles in which I swim, which, which was quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, inter- the interest there, when I say it's interesting, it's in part because you know, Van Til was originally working in a Presbyterian reform setting, uh, which, which was also fairly clearly confessional, even if I would argue that he was reinterpreting the, yeah, the confession, yeah. uh, but he was still in a confessional uh, reform setting at Westminster. Uh, yeah. So it, it's interesting that it's now the Baptists who 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 are you know to I would say almost the ones carrying that flag. Yes. Yeah. And that's why. Well, it's also weird because, like in you know confessional Baptist worlds, yep. um, our confession basically just uses the same language about God that uh, the Westminster does. Right. And when you when you confront Baptist, so David and I are both Baptists. For those who don't know, yeah. um, but but in our circles, when you point them to that, and you're like, "Look at this language right here: the light of nature in man." Do you know where that came from and what's implied there? You would, I mean, because you. The, the word heresy has been thrown around in this controversy on yeah. both sides. So I'm not just saying the meanies over there are hurting yeah. us, mom. Uh, there are <laughs> jerks on our side as well. Oh, that yeah. need to calm down. Um, but so anyway, I do, I find it interesting as well. Okay. I'm going to ask one last question as we start to wind down here. And then Joe, I'll, if, if you want to 
go whichever direction. But I am interested in this one, the way that you answer this one objection, and that is you cannot derive a theology of Trinity uh, via natural mm -hmm. theology. So mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about, is there any merit to that objection? Uh, if, if so, what is it? If not, why not? So I, whenever I hear someone bringing that type of uh, an objection, usually the idea is uh, something like, it's usually adhering to a, I, the idea that if you don't have all truth about God, therefore you, you have no truth. It's, it's right. an all or nothing truth, right? So the Christian God, the, the God that is, is triune. Yeah. He, he reveals him as, himself as such in scriptures. And so the argument is, well, if, if you don't know that God is triune, then you don't know anything about God. Mm. And, and so what I, what I want to point out is that that's false. And there's actually, the, the, to say that you, like the, the idea that you could even get the, the triune or the uh, uh, aspect of God, that God is triune from nature, I would say that's not what people are saying when they talk about natural theology. And so you actually have to distinguish between the nature and the persons. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and what we're saying in natural theology is that we know something of the nature of God, that God is, and something of his nature, but we don't know the persons. Now, I will say, uh, many, some of the pre-Socratics talk about God as father. Hmm. So we could minimally say something like natural theology teaches us that there is one God who is the father of who is our father. We can talk, we can talk like that from natural theology, but to get to the idea that there are three persons in one nature, that's something that we get from scriptures and scriptures alone. But to say that we get knowledge from God, uh, or, sorry, knowledge about God from scriptures alone is not novel. That's what the church has always been saying. Sure. The church has always been saying, yes, there are truths we know about God from nature, and scripture is divine revelation of himself. Christ right. was divine revelation of God in the incarnation. And we can talk about a progressive revelation of God in which we learn more about him. Hmm. Things that we didn't know, things that we couldn't know by our own uh, natural abilities. Uh, another part of that, which is important to keep in mind, is that our, our natural abilities are limited. Uh, yeah, Christian tradition will consistently talk about or uh, talk about this idea that on our own, via our natural abilities, in our attempt to know God, even with special revelation, we are like. In his, this is an analogy that Aquinas uses, but we find it in the patristics as well. Uh, we are like bats trying to look at the sun. Hmm. It's not that we don't have eyes, and it's not that the sun is not visible. The sun is that which is in and of itself most visible. We're just limited there, we can't go there we we can't we cannot observe the sun as bats even as humans we have a bit of difficulty with that right and, yeah. and so that's kind of the a, a way of explaining our limited ability as humans to understand the the divine natural knowledge tells us something it tells us enough that according to natural to, to, to the reformed theologians and I, I would say again christian tradition in general uh natural theology tells us enough that we are condemned when we deny, either deny that God exists or worship a false God. Yeah. Uh, Maybe that's a, a good segue into, yeah, I guess a final sort of comment. And, and I guess one way of asking it would be, what's at stake in the denial? You know, I mean, natural, obviously we have lots of good brothers and sisters that are uncomfortable with the notion of natural theology. We love them. They're our friends. Uh, uh, but what do you what do you perceive to be at stake in the denial or affirmation of natural theology uh, for the church? And really, I guess maybe I'm I'm getting at maybe even for the individual Christian, what's at sure. stake in that? Yeah, uh, I guess the two biggest things because I could probably give a long list. I think uh, the two biggest things that would be one: uh, if we get rid of natural theology, interestingly enough, we also lose the ability to rightly interpret the Word of God. So we talked about this earlier. You brought up this idea that our, our, our yeah. language means something. It points to things. We talk about anthropomorphisms and so on. Well, in order to, to, to talk about things that are allegorical or anthropomorphic, you've got to know something about that of which you are talking that allows you to say, oh, but the way I'm talking about this is only allegorical. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if I 
if I talk about Jesus as the lion of David, in order to know that I am not saying that David has a lion and his name is Jesus, right? right? In order to know that I'm not talking about a literal lion, you've got to know something about Jesus. Hmm. So there's and about lions. Yeah. Right. There's, there's things you've got to know in order to understand that, that image. So, so in my book, I talk about this, um, the, the principle of um, proper predication or, or pro- appropriate predication that to, in order to, to properly say something of God, you've got to know a little bit about what God is. And so in order to interpret scriptures rightly, to be able to read the scriptures and know that these anthropomorphisms or anthropopathisms or allegories or metaphors or similes, when they're being predicated of God, to know that these are not being predicated literally of God, that God is in fact a gigantic rock. You know, it's, no, we're not saying God is a rock. We're saying that God is a rock. We we know something of the divine nature. We know something of rocks such that we know that this is not a literal predication. God is a rock. Right. Yes. So in order to properly understand scriptures, you've got to know something about the divine nature. So that's one thing. Get rid of natural theology. You lose your ability to interpret scriptures rightly. Uh, how about this one? If I receive a letter um, and it says it's from a guy named Bob, I don't know, for, for, because the only thing that comes to mind is Jones. It's from Bob yeah. Jones. Okay. <laughs> no, don't open it. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, maybe, maybe for one that's maybe less controversial, I thought I might actually yeah. want to open Sherlock Holmes, right? Okay. <laughs> so I get a letter from Sherlock Holmes. But wait a second. Does that mean that I know that Sherlock Holmes exists? Not necessarily. It could be Joe doing an elaborate joke on me. Just, you know, and so I think, hey, I've got a letter from Sherlock Holmes. That's pretty cool. No, the fact that I have a letter signed Sherlock Holmes means nothing. In order to know that this is a legitimate letter, I have to know that the sender actually exists. Otherwise, I might have a fraudulent letter in my hands. And I might believe a lie. Yeah. And so B.B. Warfield uh, and, and a number of uh, Reformed theologians have suggested that, in fact, natural theology is what we call a preamble for Christian mm-hmm. theology. To know that the word of God or to be able to believe the word of God and and rightly interpret it, you've got to have this prior knowledge that there is a God capable of revealing himself to us through Mm. the words of scriptures. If such a being does not exist, we may just have a a fraudulent letter in our hands. And so you might even say it's not just to be able to rightly interpret the word of God. You've also got to have natural theology as a ground, you might say, or as a foundational belief so that you can believe the word of God is, in fact, from God. No God, no word of God. Mm. Another, way, another way of putting it. Uh, and, and then the third thing, uh, I was thinking about this earlier, and it slipped my mind. I got too carried away with it. Um, let me see here. The scriptures. Well, I, we can work with that for now, because I had a third yeah. thing, and it just literally No worries. Yeah, no you don't worries. have to be Trinitarian about it. Since <laughs> I was going to say... Uh, <laughs> Convenient, you've got three there, brother. Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, thank you. Um, I, I enjoyed the book immensely. Um, everyone, go ahead uh, over to Davenet or Amazon or wherever and, and buy yourself a copy. A very insightful read. And I expect we'll be hearing from uh, Dr. David Haynes in the future on this yeah. subject in various uh, mediums. Uh, but uh, just to see if you've got anything in the pipeline, anything expected in terms of a follow-up or an expansion or anything, brother? Give us oh, the, the, the expansion is certainly in 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 my mind, in the sense yeah. that uh, this was trimmed down quite a bit to put it into a size, the size that you get there. Uh, in fact, one of the one of the critiques, not a negative critique, but a critique that I saw of the book was that I didn't have a huge section on Aquinas, and yet I'm clearly influenced by Aquinas. Uh, reason for that being, uh, there's so much written yeah. uh, on Aquinas, on natural theology. Yeah. I, I didn't think it would be helpful uh, in this small small book to do a really big chapter. So, but I do intend to, to have to say more on it. So, um, I'll be I'll be I will be working on. Uh, maybe a, a larger volume, but going at it slowly. I don't intend to necessarily just pop something out next year. What are yep. what are your next book projects? 
Oh man. Uh, well, I've got uh, someone working right now uh, on typing up my notes on uh, the argument from beauty. And I'd love to see that one coming out. Uh, mm. I currently putting together my thoughts. Uh, this one is, it might seem totally unrelated. It actually is, uh, but it's just kind of a pet project. I might say that I've been thinking about for a while, uh, thinking about the philosophy of tattoos and, mm. and looking at that in relationship to meaning and, and, and how meaning is conveyed. Uh, yeah. uh, so that's, a, that, that's something I'm working on. Uh, working on Christian, I'm working on the projects on some projects on Christian Platonism right now, looking at the history of it. And I'll be interacting with um, maybe Craig Carter and a couple of other authors on, on Christian Platonism as well. I, I have a lot of interests and a lot of projects. <laughs> yeah. They're all kind of sitting there hovering and I'm yes. trying to keep them in the air at the same time. Yeah. Yes. They're haunting you. Yes. You yes. forgot about me. You don't that's, love that's, me. That's, oh yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm working on something on C.S. Lewis, which I was supposed to have done last year. Uh, and, and hopefully yeah. will come out this summer. Will, so. will Dale be able to get that tattoo he wanted after he reads your book? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. See, okay. I've been waiting for moral justification. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My conscience is now clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fact, interesting point. Uh, there are now so many people that have tattoos that to not have a tattoo is almost sending a message. Oh, it's really? immodest. Isn't that <laughs> well, not that it's necessarily immodest, but we could try that. Let's think about that. But it is sending a message. You're standing out because you don't that's have right. one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's like, hey, uh, I, I will stand out by not having one. Yeah, right? Wait, I don't think Joe, Joe, you don't have a tattoo, do you? I don't. Oh, you're sending a message yeah. right there. See? Yeah, sorry, guys. Repent yeah. of your immodesty, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, David, thank you, brother. It's always yes, a pleasure to much. see you and to talk to you. We're happy that uh, you're cranking out work. Keep it up, brother. We appreciate all your all your hard labor. Um, so I, I think I already mentioned where you can find the book. Um, so thanks for coming on. Joe, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. Thank and you. We will see you all next time. See ya.